How are we doing? Right <coughs> in my eyes. Let me go this way. Wow, this is good. I'm feeling it today. You guys are, there's something going on. I can feel it. The uh, is it stress? Is it just sort of like that slump before spring break? Is that what's going on? Valentine's Day's over. Romantic conquests were unaccomplished. Is that kind of what's going on? Okay. For those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the pastor of RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, which is what this is. It's a Christian campus ministry at Davidson College that exists uh, to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve Jesus, each other, and the church. Um, Let me tell you a little bit more about RUF, though. It exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the academic academic Olympian who is going downhill on a one-man bobsled, and for the social Olympian who is only trying to meddle in team sports this semester. RUF exists for those who aren't sure why you're here at all, maybe especially now, And those of you who circle this time in their planners as a time not to miss. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks for coming. We're glad you're here. Uh, We hope you feel welcomed and encouraged. Um, And I didn't bring a sign-up, but if you'd like to sign up for an email, come and talk to me. Uh, It's a great way to get informed. And we also have a Facebook group. I think it's Davidson RUF or RUF Davidson or something like that. Anyway, um, so this semester in large group, as you could hear in the reading, we're studying uh, the life of David. David, uh, his story occurs in the Bible, and it occurs in the Old Testament part of the Bible in First and Second Samuel, and then a few chapters in First Kings. Um, and so we've kind of every week I've kind of tried to give you a picture of why we're studying David, uh, what what we're doing, uh, looking at a guy who lived three thousand years ago. Uh, there's a lot more recent people that we could study. Um, why, why look at him? Uh, and the first reason is that David is so much like us. He's so ordinary. Um, he has successes. He has failures. He cries. He laughs. He even shrugs. And second, David is so extraordinary. He's so not like us. And I just want to kind of call your attention to the way that the New Testament describes David they, the New Testament names David 58 times. The only person named more in the New Testament is Jesus. And so clearly David's a very important figure for the scriptures. And Jesus himself in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible calls himself the root and descendant of David. What does that mean? The root and descendant. He's before David and after David. That doesn't really help. David of all people... And this is what, is what I think Jesus is trying to say in that passage and what I think the Bible is pointing to is that in order to understand Jesus' life, we have to understand David's life. And vice versa, of course. To understand David's life, we have to understand Jesus' life. And so part of unpacking the story of David is pointing to Jesus' life to explain David, but also look at David's story to explain Jesus if that makes sense. So it's going to go back and forth as we study the scripture. You can't understand David without understanding Jesus, and you can't understand Jesus without understanding David fully in that way, that is. Okay, that's why, a little bit why our series is called The God After Our Own Hearts, because what we're trying to say is that, yes, David gives us a powerful picture of Christian living, but the reality is, the deep reality is that The life of David is primarily about the God of the universe and his all-out, intensely personal love for his people 
in and through Jesus, the root and descendant of David. This week, we're back in the wilderness, uh, just a chapter later. We studied 1 Samuel chapter 24 last week. This week, we're looking at David in the wilderness yet again. And what we're looking at, um, he's still on the run. Uh, so d- remember, David's the true king of God. And Saul is, the, is not the true king, but Saul refuses to get the hint and leave the throne. And so David's on the run, and the entire army of Israel is after David. And so David is in the worst parts of Israel, the parts that no one wants to live in and they can't live in, um, because there's no water and there's no farmland. And basically Saul, even last week, acknowledged when David spared his life that David was supposed to be king. But Saul is going down swinging. He's going to take David down with him. And that's sort of where we are in the wilderness. But before we take a closer look at this action-packed scene in the desert, which is a lot of dialogue for an action scene, but before we look at it, let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for this opportunity to study your scripture, uh, to take some time away from everything else that preoccupies our hearts and our minds, and to focus them, uh, to zero in on... um, why we're on this planet, to zero in on what we ache for, what we ache over. I pray, Father, that you would meet us um, in our guts, that you meet us in our heads, that you take the thoughts that are filtering through uh, perhaps um, the sleepiness that's overcoming us, and I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would nurture our hearts in your truth and your goodness that you'd bathe us um, in your mercy. I pray, Father, that you would be in this time, and this time would be of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, I'm going to say, I'm going to put this on the record. No one introduces a song. No one introduces a song like David Wilcox. I don't know if anyone knows who that is. He's a singer-songwriter, and I don't know if you've seen him live, but it's quite an experience, because what he does is he takes an image or an experience, and he teases it out into a song. And then live shows, he explains how that song came to be with yet another image, another experience that he tells a story about. Uh, so he's just a really great storyteller, basically. And it's really fun to hear. And what's interesting about um, David Wilcox is he's one of the few people I've ever seen live whose story is sometimes better, his introduction is sometimes better than the song. Like, he's that good of a storyteller, and the song is that interesting to how it came together. Uh, one example of this is an intro to a song called Good Together. It's Good Together. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's on his live album. I'd recommend that. I'm not here to pitch David Wilcox, but here we are. Um, uh, Wilcox introduces this song uh, by asking us to imagine something that's very ordinary and an everyday reality for us. You're in an argument with somebody you love, Right? That happens, doesn't it? Am I the only one that's mad in this room? We'll talk about that later. Okay, so, look, he's, all, he's trying to say, look, you're in an argument with someone you love, and a family member, a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whatever have you, and, and he sort of explains it this way, you know, you're just waiting for that person to realize that you're right. <laughs> you know, you're just, you're just kind of biding your time, you're dancing around, you're thinking, I've got this. And it's just taking them forever to get the truth that you have. But then all of a sudden, that person, she says her point so succinctly and with some clever metaphor that's dear to your heart that all of a sudden, you 
understand exactly what she means. You get it. It makes perfect sense. And you say, do you mean when I said this, you mean that? And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go, you start describing the whole thing. Oh, and so when you said this and I said that, you meant this. And eventually she says, yeah, that's exactly right. And eventually you're so far into her perspective, into that other person's perspective, that you've forgotten what you're arguing about. You ever had that moment where you're just overcome with that moment of beauty? And Wilcox goes on to describe this experience in a metaphor, because he's like the C.S. Lewis of singer-songwriters, so he has to use an analogy or a metaphor. And it's like this. He says, it's like one of those M.C. Escher sort of figure ground deals. You know those paintings with like multiple staircases going in different directions? That's M.C. Escher. And he says, all of a sudden, your perspective suddenly switches, and you see the whole painting, the whole scene in a different way. All of a sudden, you're going up the down staircase, and you realize you're going up the up staircase, and it's a totally different picture. And so what he's saying is, you've drawn your conclusions, you've collected the data, you've connected the dots, you've seen the picture emerge, and you're certain. But then all of a sudden, you see it all differently. Same dots, same data, but the lines are drawn differently, and a different picture emerges. Your whole perspective has shifted 180. Your paradigm has reversed. You see, on the surface, the song Good Together is about how someone who is different from you, who sees the world differently from you, is actually worth getting to know. And if you listen to that person and you hear them out, you can learn a lot. But I think there's something deeper going on. It's digging in a bigger and deeper truth. I mean, we can all relate to that moment when we're in a conversation with somebody and we're arguing and we're in the heat of verbal battle, right? For some reason, we're arguing with someone we don't even mean to fight with. I mean, we're like mad at them, and they're mad at us, and we're like, why are we doing this? But we just can't kind of help ourselves. We hate fighting with them. As a friend, or a parent, or a significant other, and, all the, and then all of a sudden there's something that stops us in our angry, stomping tracks. It's a burst of beauty that stops us. Perhaps it's a metaphor. Perhaps it's a tear. A smile. They offer to us in mid-argument. Or maybe you're outside and all of a sudden you look around you and the sun is bursting through the clouds in a wonderful way. Or all of a sudden the wind is rustling through the branches in a way that you never heard the clack-clack of those branches in exactly that way. And that bigger, more beautiful picture of reality that that person gives you or that scene paints all of a sudden changes your whole perspective on everything your whole point of view, and it makes you forget what you're so angry about. I think 1 Samuel chapter 25, God gives David this much-needed burst of beauty in the unlikely form of Abigail. Abigail, in verse 3, is described as beautiful on the inside and the outside. God uses Abigail to stop David in his angry stomping tracks to prevent David from slaughtering shepherds, and to remind David of reality's bigger story. 1 Samuel chapter 25 tells us this simple truth. God carefully places beauty into our moments of stress and anger to remind us who we are and to remind us who God is. God carefully places beauty into our moments of stress and anger to remind us who we are to remind us who God is. 
And then God's handiwork plays itself out in three distinct movements in our passage in David's story tonight. Verses 1 through 13, the wilderness backdrop of beauty. This is all in your outline, by the way, uh, on the sheet that we've got handed out. Verses 18 through 35, the humble interruption of beauty. And then verses 36 through 42, the glorious resolution of beauty. So we've got those three ideas. The wilderness backdrop of beauty, the humble interruption of beauty, and the glorious resolution of beauty. And we're going to look at those in turn. So let's start with verses 1 through 13. And we're going to return again to David's, David's wilderness backdrop. I'm surprised every time I say David, I don't say Davidson. It's like going to be really hard not to do that. Okay. So that's point one. The backdrop of wilderness beauty. David and his men, remember, have moved from Engedi to another part of the wilderness of Judah. This time it's Maon. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that, so I'm just calling it a long O. Maon, okay? But David is physically and emotionally in a very similar spot. He's just changed places in the desert. The physical conditions continue to be severe. A desert with pockets of scrub. Not enough to feed 600 men, but maybe enough to feed a few sheep. Water continues to be hard to find, especially to supply 600 thirsty lips, sets of lips. And then when they do find an oasis in the desert, when they do find a place to rest and to get water and to get nourished, remember, the entire army of Israel is on their heels. And so they can't stay very long. Emotionally, this has got to be discouraging and tiring for David. He's in the midst of a 42-year run for his life. That's kind of hard to fathom. 42 years, he's in the middle of disgruntled expatriates who have an axe to grind with everybody, including David, and he's on the run. And remember, Samuel, God's prophet, had anointed him, had poured oil out of a ram's horn and said, David, you're God's king, and there's this promise of power and security from God. Where's that? Where is it? God's promise seems thin. It's wearing thin for David. We can almost feel him getting more desperate and more angry in this passage. So David, in the seeming absence of a plan from God, comes up with his own plan. And that's what this passage is about. Verses 5 through 8 give us the details of the plan. David and his men have gone into the shepherding protection business. Okay? Now, for us, this seems like a really questionable line of work. I don't know if you're, if you're like me and you read this passage and you think, is he in the mafia? Is he putting like a liens on people? Sort of like, well, I'll tell you what, I'll protect your business. If you pay me monthly, and by protect, I mean I won't destroy you. Or maybe it's like the, the person that cleans your windshield at a red light when you don't ask them to, and then they, they demand payment. And you're like, what in the world? I didn't even ask you to clean my windshield. Maybe you guys haven't had that experience. Um, admittedly, I think that David's plan has some sketchy, desperate elements to it. Okay, I don't think he does everything perfectly. But the historical context is actually really helpful here because there were bandits in the wilderness, and so the shepherds needed protecting. And Nabal was too much of a fool to take care of that. And then there's this, then there's this idea of like ancient hospitality. When you show up at somebody's house, you don't just kick them out. You give them food and a place to sleep. And then finally, there's this whole thing about festivals. This is a sheep-shearing festival. 
not something that we experience every day. Um, but look, it's really, it's actually a time like Christmas. Like, it's a time of generosity in the ancient Near East. And so I want you to imagine the scene here. Um, and so when, in verse 10 and 11, when Nabal gives the reaction he gives to David's men, you have to understand how incredibly mean-spirited that is. So let me, let me do it this way. I want you to imagine Ebenezer Scrooge, okay, in A Christmas Carol, talking to his clerk, Bob Cratchit. And not only does he say, no Christmas bonus for you and no increase in your wages to feed Tiny Tim with a crutch in the corner, but he also says, by the way, you're illegitimate and your mom is a female dog. That's exactly what the passage is getting at. Where do you come from? You're a runaway slave. Get out of my house. That's what Naval is saying, okay? That's in the Hebrew. Okay, I'm just kidding. So, look, this is what makes David even more desperate. He feels more out of control after this reaction. And it makes him even more angry. And I want you to look at verse 13. Did you notice the word sword is used three different times in the verse? David is angry, and he's getting violent. Strap on your sword, that's what he says. <laughs> They're going to go. There are 400 men who have been waiting to plunder and rape and pillage. So look, I get that the physical environment of David is, is not resonating with us. It doesn't feel relevant. I mean, think, look around at Davidson. We just had snowfall. What was that, like 10 inches in North Carolina? And then think about it, too. We have, like, incredibly lush landscaping. So desert wilderness, Davidson is not, okay? But emotionally and maybe spiritually, you can feel what David felt, if we're honest. Have you felt the stress on this campus recently, <laughs> in the last few weeks? Look, there are tests. There are things called reviews that are tests. There are midterms. There are papers due. The sports season, if you're a winter athlete or a spring athlete, is dragging at this point. The, sport, the, the club continues to demand an unexpected meeting every single week. Like, what? where did that come from? And, you know, look... Our friendships are demanding time and attention that we just can't give to them. We feel like a half-rate friend, and we feel like the people around us are half-rate friends. And whether this is your reality or just sort of swirling contagious around you, and it makes you just want to run and hide, um, these demands can make us feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. And that, by the way, is a quote from a furry-footed sage named Bilbo Baggins. Okay? <laughs> Just got thrown by Lord of the Rings reference. And this stretched out feeling can lead easily to anger. Look, I know it does for me in my own heart, okay? This kind of anger can explode into taking matters into your own hands. I mean, just think about your thought life for a second. When was the last time you said, fine, I'll take care of that? I mean, how many times has that happened in the last 24 hours, let alone a week, okay? This kind of anger especially explodes when people don't do what you want them to do, when, when situations don't go as planned, when you feel wronged, like David felt wrong. And how, is, how fitting is it? How much do you kind of sympathize with David sitting within the stroke of the hot desert sun, glaring at Nabal and glaring at the shepherds and glaring ultimately at God, who's absent? He feels absent. But God in his mercy doesn't allow us, doesn't allow David to stay there. God interrupts anger with a humble burst of beauty. I want you to see that as point two on our outline. 
You see, David was about to go way above his pay level. Do you know what I mean by that? He was about to stand in the place of God. Seeking vengeance for a wrong done, seeking vengeance for a wrong done is God's job, not ours. Okay? Look, I'm not saying that you don't pursue criminal justice. Okay? There is there needs to be societal consequences for crimes. But on a more personal level, when someone insults us by stealing our credit on a group project or calls us names to our friends behind our backs, we are forced, or we are called, excuse me, to forgive and not to retaliate. In these situations, God calls us, he asks us not to assume God's position of judgment on the situation. Not to paint that person as entirely guilty, and to paint ourselves as entirely innocent, and then to take the whole situation into our hands and exact justice. We don't have that kind of eternal, heavenly perspective and wisdom. And so to act like we do is fiction. So how does God interrupt the ugly arrogance of self-righteousness? How does he get into that anger? Often he sends us a moment of humble beauty. A beauty that reminds us who we truly are. A beauty that points to the beauty of Jesus. So look at our passage in verses 23 through 25. This beautiful aristocrat, Abigail. That's what she is. She gets down from her donkey, okay, which is like the Mercedes Benz of the ancient Near East. Okay, and she pulls up her designer dress and she kneels in the desert before this renegade David. The power behind the scene, I think, comes from Abigail, not from David. And it comes from her backstory. To God, Abigail isn't just another beautiful object. She's a human being with a story. A story that the narrator of 1 Samuel highlights as she's stuck in a bad relationship. She's stuck in a bad marriage. Think about it for a second. What are the details that we know about Abigail? She's married to a person who's literally named Fool. Okay? A fool who is stingy. He's insulting. He eats and drinks too much on a regular basis. At the risk of reading too much into this passage, Abigail probably married or was married off by arranged marriage for the sake of money. But no amount of herds can make her husband loving and decent. The clear implication is that Abigail is a beautiful person tied together with, in a relationship with, a peevish, old, angry, ugly man. So when Abigail approaches David's self-righteous anger that is getting violent quickly, let's just assume that this isn't the first time she's ever done that. Okay, let's just assume for a second that her humble interruption of wild-eyed anger happens on a regular basis. And her practice makes perfect here in verse 24. She's just the person to send to David. There she begins a speech that drives David back to faithful sanity. And she begins a speech there that we hear over and over and over again in her posture and in her words. 
But look, I want to take a time out here. For those of you who are identifying with Abigail pretty strongly here, and there's some of you who are bound to be doing this. I mean, maybe you have a volatile dad. Maybe you have a boyfriend or had a boyfriend or you have a sister or a sibling who flies off the handle or who doesn't take no well for an answer. Please don't assume what Abigail is doing in this passage is assuming the guilt of Nabal. It's very clear She's maybe apologizing for bad hospitality towards David, but she isn't blaming herself for her husband's abusiveness. This is really important, and it's important to say this. If you've been abused in this room, if you know somebody who's been abused, physically, emotionally, sexually, whatever, it's not your fault. It just isn't. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything to deserve that abuse. And I hope that RUF feels like a place where you can start to feel healing. And I hope that you find somebody in RUF that you can walk alongside and you can understand and hear your story. Because we need companionship no matter who we are. But look at me again with verses 32 and 35. In verses 32 and 35, David interprets Abigail's kneeling beauty in her humble speech. As God's doing, right? God has sent Abigail to remind David of two things. God is a promise keeper. Abigail tells David that God will not drop David in the desert. His hands are not slippery. He's a sure grip. And that David is anointed. He's chosen. He's precious. He's a servant that God has great plans for. Things of great worth to do. And this reminder helps David from committing blood guilt and from working salvation by his hands. You see, look, Abigail on her knees drives David to his knees before God. There's a humility that's contagious. Her selflessness causes David to empty himself of self-righteousness. But notice the way that the beauty that interrupts our anger is not just humble like Abigail, it's also uncontrollable. It's uncontrollable. David is kept from working salvation by his own hands. Verse 33. There's a sense in which we can't find God's peace on our terms, and that frustrates us to anger. There's a sense in which that lack of control can be an emotional wilderness within us. A heart condition that's stressed and prone to anger, especially when things and people don't do what they're supposed to do. And a lot of you are feeling that right now. A lot of mid-semester Davidson feels like things are not working according to the beginning of the semester plan. Right? Where'd all the reading assignments go? Where do the problem sets get done? But this passage assures us, in the middle of this, that God's going to find us. You know what he's going to find us with? If we remain open, if we remain looking, he's going to find us with his beauty. And even if we don't. This openness looks like this. It's as simple as looking up from our phones and getting attentive to our surroundings. Right? It looks as simple as cultivating an astonishment that there is something out there and not nothing. That we each exist and each of our lives has a grand 
story arc to them. In the words of a poet theologian named Frederick Buechner, he says it this way, Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is, and the boredom and the pain of it, no less than the excitement and the gladness. Touch, taste, feel, and smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of your life. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. That is a gift from God. Or look, perhaps understanding ourselves, understanding other people, there's also sort of an openness that we can cultivate where we make time to expose ourselves to what we find beautiful. Maybe it's a good meal. Maybe it's a little poetry. Maybe it's a little music. Maybe it's a fine painting. We can't get touched by beauty on demand. You know, like, the world isn't a DVR. Okay? But, and this makes us very tempted because we can't control it to give up trying. But there's a way in which we can become museum curators of our senses. Where we can show ourselves and put ourselves in positions where we appreciate the fact that food tastes good. It didn't have to be that way. Well, that something's beautiful didn't have to be that way either. And we can expose ourselves to things that remind us, in the words of Johann Goethe, this, that the sense of the beautiful which God implants inside of each and every one of us. What does it look like to tap into that sense of beauty? But oftentimes, even in spite of us, in the midst of our angry stomping and stamping around, God interrupts our wilderness hearts with blasts of beauty. Do you hear this for a second? Look, let me use my life again. Okay? And I'm sure you could give me a thousand examples from yours. I sometimes wake up grumpy. Okay, a lot of times wake up grumpy. I'm not a morning person. Okay, So I do college ministry. So, look, I wake up kind of and find myself sort of in this funk, like I didn't sleep enough, gosh, I'm angry about yesterday, I'm angry about today, okay? And then all of a sudden I look and I see the smiling blue eyes and incredibly dewy eyelashes of my daughter Millie. She's a one and a half, and she lights up a room. And it's like, I just melt. I melt. Or I'll be walking from a meeting to another meeting, and I'll be thinking about the 40 emails I have to do that still haven't gotten done, and I'll be tempted to sort of try to email and walk at the same time with my smartphone, which isn't very smart. And all of a sudden, at the corner of my eye, I'll catch this royal blue bluebird, the size of my fist, sitting in a tree, hopping around. And I'll think to myself, why would God make a bird stand out like that? Why in the world would you make it that color blue? A blue that you cannot possibly hide in anything from. Maybe Smurf Village. <laughs> okay? But it's a blue that has to strut, it has to puff up its feathers, and exists for the glory of other birds and people to see. You know, what is it for you this week? What was that moment that maybe you paused for a second and thought, <laughs> What in the world? Or maybe, what was it when you were angry and stewing over something that just got 
complete, got you just completely turned upside down, that capsized you with beauty. Just for a moment. Or what is that regularly, what is it that regularly, wonderfully disrupts your to-do list in your head that's constantly running? Find it. Cultivate it. It's a gift from God. And that's what this passage is saying. Whether you believe it or not, the beauty outside of us is what we all need because it's all from God. We need to believe it. We need to believe that that first-rate, beautiful thing is it. And we need to cultivate it. Because this interrupting beauty points to the interrupting love of Jesus. And this is the thing that we sometimes don't do. Sometimes we pause at the painting, but we don't go further. Or we pause at the bluebird, but we don't think about what the bluebird means. It reminds us that by faith, this beauty reminds us by faith that we're children of God, anointed by the Holy Spirit. Interrupting beauty actually does this wonderful thing where it points to the interrupting supernatural beauty of a thing called grace. Let me put it this way, and I'm going to quote an artist who puts it so well. This is this. The thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, every action is met by an equal and opposite reaction. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend it all. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And the point of the death of Christ is that Christ took the sins of the world so that we can put, so we can put out, so what we put out does not come back to us. And it's interrupted. And it's not our own works that get us through to the gates of heaven. That's obviously Bono. I feel like I have to quote him. I'm a college minister. And like all college ministers who are 30 plus think that U2 is still very relevant. Um, and look, he's what he's doing this seriously is helping us to connect the dots here. He's redrawing the line for us from our data. And he's telling us this, that our universe is shimmering like shook foil with the grandeur of God. All the time. God is always interrupting us. He's always at work in our lives. And that work is pointing to the ultimate interruption. Jesus on a cross. That place where the wrongs we do to each other and God, the angers that we hide, the stress that we suppress, didn't receive its cosmic karmic reward. On the cross, Jesus died for his anointed ones. You know what he shouted in the desert darkness? Forgive them. They know not what they do. And you see the way, point three, that the beauty points to who God is and who we are leads to the passage's final third point. The glorious resolution in verses 36 through 42. God gives David a taste of his justice in verses 36 through 38. Look, the abuser Nabal doesn't prosper. It's a taste of it. Look, the question becomes, did did Nabal die of poor health? He ate a lot, he drank a lot. Did he die of shock at the fact that he almost got killed? Did he die because he had some sort of greedy anger over the fact that, that Abigail gave away a lot of his possessions to David? The text doesn't tell us. 
all the text says is, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Okay? David and Abigail's reaction to this event, though, leads us to interpret Nabal's death as the kindness of the Lord God, a promise that justice and humility are going to prevail in the end. That in the new heavens and the new earth, God is going to come and wipe every tear from her eye, and he's going to right every wrong. And then in verses 40 through 42, God gives David and Abigail a different, another taste. A taste of his goodness, because David and Abigail get married. Before you think I'm going to go where I'm going to go, I want you to understand that there's a brief interaction with each other that tells us they're going to be good together. That they're going to look at the world and remind each other of what's right side up and not upside down. What does it mean that God is good even when he doesn't seem like he's there? They'll remind each other of God's goodness and his care for them. But look, the takeaway isn't this, and I'm almost done. The takeaway is not this. Go find a fairy tale spouse. Okay, like rescue her or, re- have, or be rescued by a mule. Have like a wonderful scene where we avoid bloodshed and then halfway ever after ride into the sunset, okay? Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of fools. Hebrews 12. Jesus' interrupting love, his grace, is what this is all about. We're married, we're united to Christ Jesus by faith. Do you get that? So the marriage at the end of the book, the end of the story, is about our marriage to Jesus. Jesus, the man, the example, who did not set up a protection business in the wilderness. The man, the example, who did not return a fool his folly but endured the shame on the cross. But if Jesus was just a good example, good luck to us all. Jesus gives us the power by his union with us, by his marital vows to us, from death where he did part from us. That power of God is this, that he died for fools like us. He died for fools like this. Angry, stressful, stress-induced fools like us. Do we get that? (laughs) All of this is all about the fact that every time you see something beautiful, the universe is shouting out, Jesus loves you. He died for you. Everything has meaning and everything has purpose that points to justice and goodness and kindness. Love, beauty, interrupts. Let it interrupt. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for um, your passage to us. It's a, it's a complicated, long story, but I do believe um, there's much to learn. What does it look like to be smitten? Not, not smote, but smitten by you. What does it look like to just see your beauty and to not get past it? I pray that you'd show us in little moments, that you'd show us in big moments, and you'd help us to have the faithfulness to remain open. To remain open that there is beauty in this world, and it's working, and it's going to prevail in the midst of ugliness inside of us and outside of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.